This is Fearmonger Fridays, and you are in the Cold War Vault. Top headline for the new Cold War this week would have to be the ongoing conflict between India and Pakistan, reminding us that when we talk about the modern context of Cold War, it doesn't have to be between the vestiges and rump states of the old East and West. But then again, in the case of India and Pakistan, to paraphrase Robert McNamara, Cold War, hell, it's a hot war. Let me quickly summarize what's happened over the last two weeks. On February 14th, a terrorist attack killed at least 46 Indian military personnel in Indian-administered Kashmir. Kashmir is the east and west Germany to the India-Pakistan Cold War. Each side has half and both wants it all. It's been going on and on since 1947, Kashmir's economic value consists of saffron and wood for professional cricket bats, so it's really more a matter of national pride than anything. For some, it's a matter of religious affiliation, and that's why the Pulwama terrorist attack happened. It was the worst in 30 years. The next day, an Islamist militant group based in Pakistan took responsibility. They want to unite Kashmir with Pakistan, the Islamic Republic of Pakistan, I should say. The finance minister of India immediately imposed measures to completely economically isolate Pakistan. In rhetoric fitting of North Korea, India promised a jaw-breaking response. On the 17th, India put a 200% tariff on Pakistani trade to pressure the government in Islamabad to do something, do anything, about the terrorist organizations operating out of the country. The next day, more militants killed more soldiers, including a major. In India, there were a lot of social rumblings, with harassment of Pakistani students, arrests, and even gasp harassment of famous Bollywood actors from Pakistan. In order to avoid further spread of violence, the Pakistani prime minister agreed to cooperate in finding the perpetrators of the original attack, but in the same breath promised a strong response if there were any attacks on Pakistan. On the 21st, the Indian government threatened to use its new dam project on the Ravi River, to deprive Pakistan of its share of water from a 1960 treaty. Actually, to be specific, Pakistan gets 6 to 10% of the additional water that India doesn't use from the Ravi River. So as Indian Prime Minister Modi had previously said, blood and water cannot run together. Ah, the poetry of political threats. The 23rd. India sweeps through Kashmir and arrests around 150 separatists and militants, and that number would eventually rise to 400. During those raids, separatists and an army soldier were killed in a gun battle with Pakistani militants. On the 26th, 
India launched sorties into Pakistan to hit militant groups. In the attack, at least one Indian plane was shot down, its pilot ejected, and was captured. Let me elaborate on that one. In true Cold War style, the Indian pilot was forced to eject after his MiG-21 was shot down in a dogfight, the first in 48 years. He drifted into, or was already in, the Pakistani-controlled side of Kashmir. He was chased and attacked by angry villagers while he tried to destroy maps and documents by soaking them in a pond and eating them. After this, Pakistan closed its airspace, causing enormous worldwide disruption to air travel. China canceled all of its flights into Pakistan. As of yesterday, soldiers were lobbing mortars over the border at each other. As a peace gesture, the Pakistani prime minister offered to return the pilot on the 1st of March, no strings attached. That's today. As of the recording of this episode, he's been released back to India and is being treated as a national hero with a truly incredible mustache. And all was right with the world. Maybe. Really, anything could happen today or tomorrow. Another terrorist attack, a misstep, a stray jet. This is why disputed geographical locations like this are always dangerous, particularly when the powers that share that disputed location have been at each other's throats since 1947. So why do people make a fuss about India and Pakistan? Because they have nuclear weapons? I would argue no. Not as a root cause. Several countries do, and many countries bicker. India and Pakistan are a unique case because they're the only two simultaneously nuclear-armed states to ever engage in direct military conflict. The two countries have gone to war four times. 1947, 1965, 1971, and in 1999, both sides were nuclear-armed, as they are today with roughly 140 weapons each, though no one knows exactly. The nuclear rivalry between the two has been heated, and it's been a point of intense national pride. India developed its first nuclear weapon in 1974. It was called the Smiling Buddha. So this gave Pakistan the push to get serious about nuclear weapons development. For political reasons... India decided to detonate a nuclear weapon in May 1998. Actually, it detonated three on the 11th and two on the 13th. Indignant and not to be outdone, two weeks later, Pakistan detonated five on the 28th and two more for good measure on the 30th. In addition to those four official wars, there have been countless incidents and scrapes and several simmering conflicts like Kashmir. Of those, at least four skirmishes, at least as troubling as the one this week, that might have led to war occurred during the years of mutual nuclear armament. Along with the standing conflict in Kashmir, there are regular disputes over naval transgressions and other border territories that could flare up any day. 
There is a question as to whether the world needs to worry about these nuclear-armed neighbors and whether they might be some kind of Balkan spark to a world war. Well, history so far doesn't seem to indicate that. In the Indo-Pakistani War of 1965, as rare as this might seem, the Soviet Union did not take a side as a counterpoint to the U.S. In fact, the USSR was critical in negotiating the peace. The least, and indeed the most, that can be said for the U.S. in 1965 was that it refrained from offering any military aid to Pakistan. In the 1971 war, the U.S. and Great Britain sent aircraft carriers to the Indian Ocean in an attempt to pressure India. The Soviet Union sent a counterforce of submarines and warships. A lot of Cold War intrigue surrounds this war, and it might be a great subject for another time. But in the end, the Soviet Union restrained India, and communication between Nixon and Brezhnev was calm and reasoned, as it could be expected to be. In any case, while war has broken out, they seem hardly to have been as dangerous as the friction in Berlin during the coldest days. But with all of that said, past performance cannot be an indicator of future success. There is something in the timeline of events of these last two weeks that's nagged at me. Amid the obvious action of the unfolding drama, I couldn't quite put my finger on it. But I see now. I see a path to World War III that runs through Kashmir. It's not ideological, and it's not particularly territorial but it is a matter of existential survival. It's the stuff of all life. Water. In that threat to reduce the flow of water into Pakistan, you see something more dangerous than dogfights over Kashmir or terrorists and separatists. You see the opening salvo of what might very well be the biggest water-based conflict of the future. And it could very well be the spark for World War III. Water is irrigation. It is food. It is fundamental. India has the wherewithal and motivation to build dams on a grand scale, even in violation of the Indus Waters Treaty of 1960. Water in the experience of post-colonial India especially is not just a resource or even a necessity. It's a point of national pride. To command and control water is to prove technological and engineering prowess and create a breadbasket for its people. Now, it's important to note that the 6 to 10% of water allowed to Pakistan from the Ravi is excess, and it's within the treaty to choke that off, even if out of spite. But five of the six tributaries of the Indus River flow through India before they get to Pakistan. 85% of Pakistan's food is grown through this Indus irrigation. To shunt the tributaries of the Indus would be the end of Pakistan as a viable nation-state. Momentary aside, Dmitry Kiselyev 
the Kremlin's chief talking head and famous for just a few years ago asserting that Russia could turn the United States into nuclear dust, made some very hawkish remarks on a popular news program last week. He said, Russia will be forced to create and deploy weapons that can be used in areas that contain decision-making centers for the missile systems threatening us. He was supported by an animation of a submarine lurking off of the U.S. West Coast and launching at what, to my eye, looks like Malmstrom Air Force Base and the Las Vegas Strip, both centers of command and control in their own ways. After this, critics took to media as they do, and the New York Times reported that one political commentator in Moscow wrote, and indeed he did write because I found the source, just moments before, the same news program reported that some 200,000 Russian children attended school with only outhouses for toilets. What exactly was worth defending with nuclear-tipped missiles? That is the question. What is worth pulling that ultimate trigger? pushing that final button. It's what it's always been through the whole Cold War. Ideology? No. Territory? No. It is survival of the nation. It's a last defense against an existential threat. Water. That's worth fighting for. In a particularly pointed opinion piece, by Gwyn Dyer. She writes, Ignorant Indian nationalists often think threats about water are a good way to control Pakistan. In fact, they are a good way to get nuked. Welcome to the water wars, my friends. This has been Fearmonger Fridays on the Cold War Vault. Follow The Vault on Facebook and Twitter at Cold War Vault and see images and notes for this episode and others on the website coldwarvault.com. You can like the show on iTunes. Please do. It really does help. Until next time, I'll be in The Vault with my cases of bottled Icelandic water. <laughs>